Bookstack with Richard Aldous, the Books and Ideas podcast brought to you by AmericanPurpose.com. Coming up on the show today, Lawrence Jerdam, author of the new book, The Rough Rider and The Professor, Theodore Roosevelt, Henry Cabot Lodge, and the friendship that changed American history. Uh, LJ, welcome to Bookstack. Richard, it's so great to be here and thanks for taking the time to have me on. And congratulations on the new book. And, and of course, most people will know about President Theodore Roosevelt. Uh, but why is Henry Cabot Lodge important? Henry Cabot Lodge um, was really the person who was responsible for so much of Theodore Roosevelt's immediate success. And when I say immediate success, Roosevelt liked to walk around and tell people, about his biography, and he would say, I rose like a rocket. And that's essentially true. But Henry Cabot Lodge, in my view, was the man who really lit the fuse and guided the rocket that led Roosevelt to this incredible success in the presidency in just uh, under 18 years, where he rose from essentially an unknown legislator to president of the United States. Yeah, and you're, you're, you start the book actually with a, a quote from uh, Roosevelt making clear just how much uh, he owes to C uh, Cabot Lodge and how much um, affection he has for him. He says, he was my closest friend personally, politically, and in every other way, and occupied toward me a relationship that no other man has occupied or will occupy. It was really a, a tremendous friendship. And I, you know, I'm sure, as you know, being a historian and whenever you begin a project, you never actually know how it's going to end up. And you could end up going down an enormous rabbit hole with nothing uh, at the bottom. And then you've got to start all over again. And um, when I started researching this and I had always whenever I had read about Roosevelt, I'd always seen Lodge. And we learned here in, in, in the United States when we were in high school, and perhaps you you may have learned it as well, that. Uh, the only thing you know about Henry Cabot Lodge is that he was responsible for figuratively killing Woodrow Wilson and destroying the League of Nations, and that's really it. But as I read about uh, Lodge in any Roosevelt biography I read, he was always on the periphery. He was always there. He was always up to something. And I found it really interesting. Why wasn't this friendship written about in, in greater detail? And then when I came across this incredible set of 2,500 letters between uh, Theodore Roosevelt and uh, Henry Cabot Lodge from 1884 to 1919, which was really these unedited conversations, I thought it was really terrific. And as I explored both Roosevelt and, and more importantly, Henry Cabot Lodge, who, as you said, I really didn't know a lot about either. It was just uh, really wonderful and particularly how much in common they had that ambition, that drive, that patrician upbringing, uh, and that sort of unpredictable temperament which both men possessed, and the fact that they both had no problem saying what was on their minds at any given time, uh, I thought it was really a, a tremendous relationship and one I was very glad that I was able to write about. Yeah, and, and in many ways, this is a, a study in contrasts. Uh, you show T.R., he's comfortable with people of all kinds of backgrounds. He's kind of enthusiasm on steroids, really, whereas Lodge is this much more stoic and, uh, and cerebral kind of character. He's actually a poor orator. He could seem cold to many people. But uh, you show in the book that in private and particularly 
with Roosevelt, he's a very different kind of character. Yeah, it's it's really interesting. And, and I think one knows this when we study particularly politicians of the past uh, with this public and then private persona. And I'm not going to say that Lodge was sweetness and light, you know, in the in in the privacy of his own home and on out on the husting, so to speak, couldn't stand people and and dealing with them. But he was somebody who was a very intelligent man. Uh, I think he liked Roosevelt a great deal because of that enthusiasm and color and uh, warmth that that Roosevelt displayed. I mean, I think it is very much sort of in some way an opposite opposites attract because Lodge didn't possess any of these qualities. But clearly, um, he thought Roosevelt was someone who had a unique ability to achieve great things in history. And Lodge, being a, a historian and someone who believed the United States had a destiny to play in the history of the world, uh, really latched on to Roosevelt when he believed he had his own rendezvous with destiny and was more than happy to do whatever he could to bring that destiny to fruition. Yeah, and they they both have this obsession with uh, physical uh, conditioning exercise, although maybe Lodge is uh, more of a greyhound to, uh, to Roosevelt's bulldog. Um, but one of the things that really comes across uh, strongly, and I suppose it's it's reflected in the title as well, is the importance of books and ideas and history uh, to both men. And actually, sometimes that's something that we forget about Roosevelt because he's such a a man of action in the in the public memory. Yeah, both men were were I, I believe true intellectuals, just based on the fact if you walk around uh, Roosevelt's home at Sagamore Hill and you've got hundreds and hundreds of books on all of these really sort of unique subjects or rarefied subjects on nature, history, sport, verse of, of various kinds. And, and then somebody like Henry Cabot Lodge, who, who wrote numerous books on American history, was one of the first men to receive a PhD in history from Harvard. Both men loved sitting together with their wives, talking about Shakespeare, Lord Byron, uh, other, you know, writers and and poets of the time or or before the time, it was something that that gave each of them great joy. Lodge and Roosevelt both had photographic memories. Um, people were often surprised that Lodge could get up and just quote reams of Shakespeare, and he carried a book of Shakespeare in his pocket everywhere he went. And Roosevelt, of course loved books, read two, three a day, could remember all of them, every every word that that he read. I was talking to someone recently who said we were going through the, the uh, books in his home and there were really very few markings in them. And I said, well, Roosevelt had a photographic memory. He, he didn't need to do that because he just could remember um, a page or a play or anything he heard or, or, or read. So both men were remarkable. Uh, intellectually and really were in in top form in regards to that. And uh, you mentioned it uh, before, but of course, they're both patricians. They have this combination of ambition and a sense of duty. But as you pointed out there, that's underpinned by this this broad education that was shared, but not just by these two, but by that entire governing class. Yes, it's it's really something that we don't see anymore. It is really this patrician class and this philosophy of, of noblesse oblige, the idea of giving something, you know, much as 
is given and much is expected. And Roosevelt and Lodge really held that in their hearts. It was something that had been imparted to them by both of their fathers, both of whom believed in public service, uh, were great believers in uh, the greatness of, of the United States. And both men uh, were determined to give something back over the course of their careers. Both men believed that they had the right to essentially be the leaders of their state and of their nation, and that they were destined to uh, achieve great things, and that the United States was destined to achieve great things, and they were going to make that happen. And, you know, this sense that their conservatism uh, is very distinct, but it's different to that business conservatism, which obviously is something that later on, both of them will act to constrain that this this sense of big business, the extremes of wealth, and particularly wealth disparity, is something that's at the heart of their conservative philosophy. Yes, it's very much representative of the Gilded Age and the negative uh, view that both men had of it. And I, I think you can give one one example that uh, Henry Cabot Lodge uh, spent most of his life in Nahant, which is a small village on the coast of Massachusetts. It's it's a, a very rustic place. Uh, there's not a lot of activity. It's not uh, glamorous as Newport or Palm Beach or any of these other places. It was a very simple place where people could relax, read, contemplate, uh, go skinny dipping, which is something that Lodge loved to do. And he really looked down on the excessiveness along with Roosevelt, of the excessiveness of this new wealth or new money that was shaping uh, the United States. He not only thought it was bad economically in terms of what big business was doing to much of the uh, American public in terms of uh, pushing their backs to the wall, as, as Lodge said, but he thought there was something very um, immoral about it. He believed that we unfortunately had come to a place where money was the answer to everything, that essentially if you had a lot of money, you were entitled to do anything you wanted. And Lodge and Roosevelt were determined to do what they could to put a, a bit of a restraint on that. I, I would sort of argue that both men, Lodge more so than, than Roosevelt, were Burkean conservatives. They believed in slow uh, a slow process, one step at a time. You know, incrementalism was really the key here. And, and this is something that they spent much of their lives trying to do in terms of working with American government to restrain the excessiveness of big business. Yeah, they have this, this Burkean view, as, you, as you've described it, on the home front. Um, it's rather different in foreign affairs that this relationship is crucial to the development of what we usually describe as American exceptionalism, maybe even American imperialism. Yes, there's no, there's no doubt that both men uh, worshipped American history, people like George Washington, Andrew Jackson. Uh, they believed the Constitution and the Declaration of Independence were divinely inspired. Uh, essentially, very much this idea that America had a special role to play in the world that had been placed uh, by God between two oceans, and that it was there uh, to bring prosperity and safety and security uh, to the rest 
context of the world, very much what we would later call in terms of what I just said, this idea of Wilsonian idealism. Uh, Lodge believed that the only way that the United States could flourish was to expand internationally. He very much believed in that message that George Washington had talked about at the end of his farewell address about this idea of moving westward. Well, of course, by the time Lodge and Roosevelt reached their respective centers of power, the West is gone and the only other choice of expansion is abroad. And both Lodge and Roosevelt believed that, um, that the Navy, a great Navy in the tradition of Great Britain and, and other European powers, really was sort of the answer to allowing any nation to achieve a broad sense of power and influence in the world. And that was what Roosevelt and Lodge very much wanted to see happen. So Vice President Roosevelt becomes president after the assassination of President McKinley. Um, did Lodge run him? One paper calls him the chaperone to the president. Yes, that was something that uh, really uh, sort of was one of the many examples where we see this, what I call the changing of the guard and indeed the sort of turning of the tide in the relationship between the two men. Um, many people believe going way back to even 1884 when Lodge and Roosevelt first got acquainted and they make their stand at the Republican convention where they choose unhappily to support James Blaine. Many people believed that uh, Lodge was some kind of Svengali to Theodore Roosevelt, that he had some kind of control over Roosevelt and was manipulating him. And this was sort of an old rumor that continued right up to the presidency, where there was a cartoon that was published in one of the Boston papers on a Sunday morning, where there was a huge picture of Theodore Roosevelt at a phone bank. Uh, with all of these different issues that he and Lodge were interested in. And underneath, there was a small little typescript written, Henry Cabot Lodge operator. Like Lodge was the man behind uh, the throne. And I don't know what Roosevelt thought about it. He may have laughed it off. But a lot of people had referred to their relationship as the firm of Lodge and Roosevelt, where Lodge was the senior man, Roosevelt the junior man. And when Roosevelt becomes president, um, he's confronted by a journalist who says, well, we all know how close you and Senator Lodge are. Well, what are you going to do? Or is he going to have a carte blanche to the White House? Because that's what everybody seems to believe. And Roosevelt looked at this guy in a very steely sort of way and said, you don't understand. Lodge does not run me. I run him. And I think that's kind of like Roosevelt sticking his thumb up in the air at people who are saying, you know, Lodge is the man who has control. And Roosevelt's like, I'm president. And I'm not going to let anybody forget it. But there's a there's a great story that you tell in the book of uh, T.R.'s young son, who was losing one of his favorite Secret Service uh, members of the detail, I think. Uh, and he says in, in a half, well, I'm going to see Lodge. That's what my father always tells people to do when they need things done. Um, and, and it is true. You show you show the influence in decisions like, for example, the appointment of his childhood friend, Oliver Wendell Holmes, to the Supreme Court. So, so clearly Lodge uh, is able to pull levers when he needs to. Yes, he, he's able to pull levers when he needs to, but for him, it's probably never enough. And, and there are examples of this throughout the book. And, and one other example is a small little story where Lodge had written Roosevelt a note saying, I'm wondering, you know, I, I talked to the mayor of Brookline, they're celebrating their bicentennial. And I, I said that you would write a, a proclamation uh, that they could expect 
And Roosevelt writes uh, a note back to Lodge very quickly within a couple of days and says, my dear man, do not ever send me a letter like this again. I get things like this all the time. I don't need to get it from you. And Lodge clearly was taken aback because he wrote to, to Roosevelt shortly thereafter, I was only joking. And look, I mean, let's be frank. Henry Cabot Lodge barely had, if any, a sense of humor. And he never joked about things that were politically uh, involved. So clearly he sort of was taken aback and he was like, clearly I pushed this guy a little too much and I understand TR's temperament. And so I need to, I need to back off a little bit, but that didn't stop him from uh, continuing to try to probe and push Roosevelt to do certain things that Roosevelt in the end didn't want to do. Even Henry Cabot Lodge in his own words, Back in 1884, when this whole rumor of he being a Svengali to a young TR, he said nobody could make Theodore Roosevelt do something that Theodore Roosevelt didn't want to do. And and you do show that that Lodge worried about uh, Roosevelt as president. Sometimes feared that he was undermining the very fabric of the nation and the constitution uh, itself. And and of course, as you uh, demonstrate in very dramatic fashion. The two men did fall out quite spectacularly when Roosevelt runs in uh, 1912, not as a Republican. Yeah, and it's ironic because Lodge was the one who wanted him to come back. He wanted him to come back and run for president. He wanted him to try to correct uh, the problems within the Republican Party that had developed under William Howard Taft. And when Roosevelt does come back, he starts to really show himself as the true progressive. I believe he always was where he starts talking about the idea of direct election of senators, the ability of government to use the power of eminent domain to seize community property, and most importantly, uh, the idea that the public can recall judges if they start issuing opinions that the public doesn't like. And this really drove uh, Lodge completely crazy. And he wrote this very heartfelt note to TR where he said, you've really hurt me worse than anybody has ever done. I thought that we understood one another. I thought we were on the same page. Clearly, we're not. And I can't support you in this primary in 1912. To Lodge's credit, um, he chose, as he said, to sit out uh, the primary. And while he said he'd sit out the primary, it's not entirely true because he arranged for the Massachusetts primary to go the way of William Howard Taft. I don't know what Roosevelt thought of that. I have been unable to find any record of it. I know that Edith Roosevelt was very unhappy with both Lodge and Elihu Root for turning their backs on TR during this very difficult time in 1912. She never forgave Root. Uh, she did forgive Lodge, um, but it was a very difficult period. And for two men who were used to writing two, three letters to one another a day, um, you might have had one letter, two letters a week, maybe, if that, for about a year or so. And, I mean, they're reconciled, uh, I guess, over their, their mutual loathing of Woodrow Wilson, which is intense for both of them. Yeah, it was really, after Roosevelt was shot in 1912, Lodge wrote two very heartfelt telegrams, and I think it really touched TR, and they became friendly again. Roosevelt invited Lodge to his youngest daughter's uh, wedding. Uh, none of the other men, such as Taft or Root or any of these other folks that he had aligned himself with earlier, were there. Um, and then, of course, they become really aligned over their 
real dislike and distaste of Woodrow Wilson, who Lodge absolutely hated uh, because he thought he was, uh, Wilson was intellectually dishonest, that he was an opportunist, that his character was suspect. And of course, character, virtue, uh, and honor were ideas that were still very important uh, in this portion of the 20th century. And they were very important to both Lodge and Roosevelt, who'd grown up in the shadow of the Civil War, where those qualities were really the coin of the realm at that particular time. Yeah, you used the phrase in the shadow there. It It is very striking reading the book that uh, it is only really after the death of, of Roosevelt, which devastates uh, Lodge, uh, but it's only after that death that perhaps he fully comes into his own, that uh, many of his most important contributions, for example, uh, on the League of Nations that you mentioned earlier, uh, but also something like, I mean, this is very much in the news at the moment with uh, Israel, of course, but uh, something like the Lodge Fish Resolution on Palestine, which makes its own contribution to the complicated history uh, of that region. So, so why is it, do you think, that he makes such an important contribution only after the death of Roosevelt? Yeah, I think one of the things was that it's interesting. Um, Lodge had lost a lot of people close to him during the narrative that I describe. His, his wife, Nanny, who was a sensational woman, and I think the person I enjoyed writing most about, uh, passes away. His son, his eldest son, uh, George Cabot Bay Lodge uh, passes away in a very sad episode. And uh, Henry Adams, his former mentor, is gone. And NTR, of course, is gone. And there's really nobody left. And so all Lodge really has is the battle, this battle for, for American greatness uh, to keep the nation in the spirit that he and Roosevelt had fought to uh, create and from an international point of view. And, and I also think he was, he was slowing down a bit as well. And so um, perhaps the time that he had left in the Senate, he could really focus more in on. There was no more campaigns to run. There was no more great international battles to fight. And as he said, you know, early on in Roosevelt's presidency, um, I've come as far as I can, as far as that he was in the Senate. That's where he wanted to be. He finally became head of the Senate Foreign Relations Committee, formally head of the Senate Foreign Relations Committee, even though he had been running it for years. He just from a seniority point of view, he didn't have that little feather in his cap, so to speak. Um, and I think he just was focusing on things that he believed were were important, grandchildren uh, and and foreign policy, which was the thing that he really uh, loved and was really interested in. Yeah, it's striking coming away from this book that really these two men, they represent a, a rhetorical and political belief in morality, uh, in public service, as you mentioned before. Uh, for them, it's also about the, the, the defense and projection of the values of, of Western civilization, as they, they would describe it. Uh, it. It is very striking that none of these things are really things that we hear much about today in modern politics. Yeah, you know, I, I'm, I have sort of an idea in the back of my mind about another book on George H.W. Bush and, and the whole patrician world that, that he emerged from. And it's very similar to Lodge and, and Roosevelt in that they had certain people that they looked at as models, uh, Washington, Lincoln, 
uh, real giants of of the age, and and they believed that that the presidency and government were really about this idea of virtue and integrity and honor and and the fact that that one should give back to their nation if they have the opportunity and and should be prepared and experience was enormously important and you're right we don't see these uh ideas for whatever reason anymore yeah and i, I suppose that that in turn raises the question whether is is this a tradition that is just historically specific and had its moment or do you think that there is a future for a Roosevelt Lodge strand in modern republicanism? I'm always hopeful. I do believe that ultimately people who have the experience and the temperament to navigate uh, their way through the complexities of, of policy, both foreign and domestic, are, are very, very necessary. And for all of the criticism that that people, uh, particularly uh, the GOP, says about, oh, the deep state. Um, Roosevelt was responsible for, for civil service reform, and Lodge was a big fan of civil service reform. Uh, he, I remember there was a situation where he was considering putting his son, Bay, in his office as his assistant. And he wrote Roosevelt constant letters. They went back and forth for weeks on this about, was this the right thing to do? Was this proper? Uh, should this occur? Would this paint Lodge as a as sort of one of a corrupt politician? They were concerned about these things. Nobody would think about something like that today, but for them it was very, very important. And and also this tradition, as you mentioned earlier, of incrementalism, of gradualism. You know, it it does raise the question of what lessons we can learn from that in our twenty four seven social media uh, environment, where every single decision, every utterance by a politician is immediately analysed, absolutely in the moment, and kind of change over time is is perhaps much harder to achieve. Yeah, no, it's very interesting. I always remember, uh, and I can't remember who wrote it. I think it it was. Uh... Maybe it was William Sapphire back in the days of the of the Blair administration. Uh, he talked about the whole idea of email and how no politician has time to think anymore. And he talked about this idea of how Churchill loved sitting in his bath, you know, for however long, just contemplating what to do next. Now it's nobody has any time to do anything. And those little gray cells, as Hercule Poirot used to say, um, it, it it's harder and harder to process issues that require a lot of complex thinking and and uh, and discussion that's in a way why i think letter writing uh obviously no longer as well was such a valuable form because it really did allow you to put your words out on the page and think about things as you were doing it i mean there are all these examples of harry truman who to vent his anger he would write a letter and then rip it up and that was a way he could get his frustration at, except when he made the mistake of sending that letter about Margaret Truman's recital of the Washington Post, you know, but I, I think there are valued lessons to be learned in in history and in in the way things were done. And and I, I don't see why certain things couldn't continue to be done, even in this information age that we live in. So the book is The Rough Rider and the Professor Theodore Roosevelt, Henry Cabot Lodge and the Friendship that Changed American History. It's written by my guest, Lawrence Jerdam, and it's published by Pegasus Books. 
Uh, but for now, LJ, congratulations again. And thanks for joining us on Bookstack. Thanks, Richard. I had a lot of fun. So that's it from us this week. Don't forget to check our website, AmericanPurpose.com, and to leave us a review on your podcast app. The show is produced by Laura Silverman, and this is me, Richard Alder, saying thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.